What's up, fantasy nerds? Welcome back to another episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Rob Santos, joined as always by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And today, on Inking Out Loud, we're diving back into a story that we've left hanging for nearly two years now, with Arcady Martin's Tix Kalan series, now on to A Desolation Called Peace, book two. Drew, would you kindly fill us in on everything that's happened up to and including chapter nine? Absolutely. Desolation Called Peace opens three months after the events of A Memory Called Empire. Mahit Desmare has returned to LaSalle Station and is struggling to integrate the new Yiskander Imago that she got in the back half of A Memory Called Empire. Meanwhile, Texcalon's war against the mysterious aliens is not going well. The Yautlek Nine Hibiscus is in charge of six legions of the fleet, but between the inscrutable power of the aliens and fleet politics brought on by another fleet captain, Nine Hibiscus and her right-hand man, Twenty Cicada, are struggling. After an encounter with the aliens and the reception of alien transmissions, Nine Hibiscus sends for a language expert from the Information Ministry. Who else would reply than our old friend Three Seagrass, who sends herself to the front lines, with a well-timed stop at Lestelle Station to pick up Mahit, inadvertently saving her from being exposed by Heritage Counselor Aknel Omnardbot and possibly being killed for having Yiskander's updated Imago. Mahit and Three Seagrass arrive on Wait for the Wheel, the flagship of Nine Hibiscus, just in time to see the first autopsy of a dead alien. After an argument over Three Seagrass's presumption of Mahit's humanity and uncivilized nature, they quickly construct a message to send to the aliens. Throughout all of this, we've also been following the 11-year-old Eight Antidote, 90% clone of the late Emperor Six Direction. Eight Antidote is doing his best to learn the trappings of empire and leadership, and finds himself dragged into imperial politics by his erstwhile tutor, Eleven Laurel, and the new emperor, Nineteen Ads herself. Okay. So Martine starts us off right away, and I'm jumping into style in case it's not obvious. She starts us off right away with exactly what it was I wanted at the end of the first book. I wanted to to know more about the extraterrestrial threat to the Texcalon Empire, or maybe just to humanity in general. I'm pretty sure to humanity in general. And she started along with this prelude, bodies who think language, who cry with their mouths and leak water from their eyes, and later, who have touched so much of the void home already and dwell in it and have come so very close to the jump gates behind which all of our blood homes, new and old. I was like, yikes, that is creepy and foreboding and exactly the tease that I wanted to dive heedlessly into this book. (laughs) So, and oh my god, at the end of chapter one, with a fight to save their pilots, and like having to mercifully fire upon their own soldiers over the agonized screaming and nonsensical shrieking, I was like, wow, that's how you begin a book, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Uh, that prelude was art. Something, yes. It was <laughs> incredible. The I, I had a very similar reaction to you when I when I read those opening pages where i was like yeah yeah this uh this author is not resting on her laurels she wrote a hell of a book won a whole bunch of awards for it and now she is setting out to exceed herself with this one and it's it's just uh exactly what i was looking for you know her her prose is just as good if not better than it was in a memory called empire uh the things that i loved the thematic stylistic things that I loved about a memory called empire are still here. We still have these moments of, uh, 
that, that Tixcalonly culture around narrative and story and and even more so than in the first book here it's shown in stark contrast to the stationer culture and it was highlighted i mean i i was like i had the biggest grin on my face when at the very end of chapter 9 when mahit is trying to distract herself with like the graphic novel yeah and oh, yeah. <laughs> and it, it was just, it was so good. You know, I got to find this line again. Um, yeah, graphic stories hadn't been youth culture fashion when he'd been young at all. Mahit found herself grasping for the background, the referentiality and citation that she'd expect in a Texcalonly text, even an unfamiliar one, and didn't find it. It figures, Yaskander told her. All the older Yaskander, amused, world-weary, faintly intrigued, that the one thing we'd have to read would be stationer native art written by teenagers who hadn't taken the aptitudes yet. Go on. Turn the page. I want to see what happens he next. He does want to see what happens next. Oh, it's so good. It's the genius there is true genius in the writing of this book, in the construction of these cultures and the way she, like, doesn't break the fourth wall by, while, like, breaking the fourth wall within the bounds of the story, if that makes sense. Like, she's getting meta like, at a lower level, <laughs> and then and then building a greater, you know, meta context throughout the whole book. Like it's it's so clever. It it's just cheeky. blows me away, man. Like it's cheeky. <laughs> I can't I, I I could never in a million years come up with this stuff myself. Yeah. And this isn't the kind of stuff that I'm really paying attention to. I've already talked about this in, in many, many previous episodes. If you've listened to even one tenth of our repository of episodes, you would know that and I'll say it again. Rob's not a huge fan of politics. He's not a huge fan of language. I, like, I do like my, my gorgeously constructed sentences and paragraphs. But everything that Drew's talking about, this is something that, Drew, you you really, really love. <laughs> I, myself, I'm just kind of patiently waiting for, to get back to the action. I'm a simpler reader. Uh, reader. I'm not so much into subtlety, into, into play. And so... There's, there's a lot of back and forth, though, I found. And I can't remember if this is the case in, in A Memory Called Empire. Drew, correct me if you... If you uh, do remember, but there's a lot of back and forth within the chapters in this, like point of view switching constantly back and forth so that if you're getting something that you don't entirely like, you do switch characters pretty soon and you get back into the head of someone like Nine Hibiscus, who for me is somebody who I cannot wait to get back to because with yeah. Nine Hibiscus is all of the mystery and all of the horror and all of the alien existential threat. And so there's a lot for everybody, is what I'm gathering here. I didn't notice a whole lot of what you're talking about, but there's still a lot for the horror and for the mystery and for what I like. And we're switching back and forth between viewpoints within a chapter pretty regularly. It's not even really like that we're getting a really long scene from one and then a short scene from other. They're pretty evenly interspaced, and it's working for me in a way that wasn't quite working in a, in a memory called Empire. Yeah, I was. Uh, I had a note to talk about this. Um, the the point of view um, 
usage in this book is substantially different from A Memory Called Empire, where it was largely driven by Mahit. We got a few other, you know, uh, a few other points of view seated here and there, but there wasn't this, like, structural backbone of give and take, where in this one we have four major point of view characters. We have nine hibiscus, we have three seagrass, we have Mahit, and we have eight antidote. And then, you know, we get these interlude points of view occasionally uh, from, you know, Omnardbot's point of view or, or whatever. Anshu. The way yeah, we did. Like holy. Yeah, the holy way hell. we did in A Memory Called Empire. And then, of course, we, we keep getting these recurring and deeply disturbing points of view, for lack of a better term, uh, from these aliens. You know, and, uh, and those are just super interesting and incredibly lyrical and disturbing and and just she does a really good job of making them feel alien even though like those scenes are a contradiction in form where it's being presented to us in english in language but it's the thoughts of an alien that does not think in language (laughs) you know and so she, she's she got this balancing act going on, and I think she's really pulling it off. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> the balance is, is there. It's definitely there, you know. I, even if during, like, the characters I don't find myself particularly invested in, or even as much as I was invested in for, for the first book, characters like Mahit, characters like Three Seagrass, there's a lot of politics going on with them in the first half of this book. And so... I was just sort of glazing over in a lot of ways, and I find myself having to re-repeat, uh, like reread several paragraphs at a time. Uh, but there was always another scene to get back to within the same chapter, something that really hooked me back in with Nine Hibiscus or Eight Antidote. And there's a lot of politics going on with Eight Antidote, but for some reason it doesn't bother me, and I'll get into that more with his character. Yeah, yeah. But I'm, the balancing act is to... <laughs> definitely noticeable, and it, and it should be appreciated, because this is something mm-hmm. I've seen really f- clumsily handled in other authors' hands. Yeah, yeah, there is absolutely a deftness uh, with Martine here where, you know, she she's for sure writing to her strengths. You know, in in real life, she has a lot of experience, you know, with uh, history, political history and and modern political science. Uh, you know, she's a city planner. She um, oh, is she? I mean, yeah. So nice. She she just moved to New Mexico a year or two ago and she's doing like some sort of consulting work with the, um, uh, I think like the state legislature there, um, on like energy planning and, uh, yeah. And so she's got, she's got a lot of like hands-on real world experience with civil politics, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it comes through, you can tell that she knows the infrastructure of this world she's built and how things would have to work. And and that makes the politics more engaging to me because there's substance to it. It's not just an author telling you, oh, look, there's some politics going on over there. We're in the nitty gritty. You know, we, we have... Me. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but just, just down to the level of detail where... Three seagrass making this journey out to LaSalle Station and and leaving uh, the city 
on a medical transport packed with frozen hearts for transplants. Yeah. You know, and like the, the, the details of commerce and economy as well as the culture and all of this, you know, um, flowery narrative and, and language, love of language. So it's, it's a dynamic, deep uh, bit of world building. It, I was just going to bring up world building. Exactly. This is the kind of world building that this, that is done by an expert. And there's always more for you to, to, to dive into, I'm sure, if you want to. If you're that kind of person. I just don't like that. I, it's just me. <laughs> I have no patience for something like this. And, you know, I was, I, was, I was complaining about this on episodes that we just finished with Robert Jackson Bennett's Divine Cities trilogy. And this is something, <laughs> politics especially, is something that Robert Jordan, who's one of the greatest fantasy authors to ever pen the genre he was infamous for, or famous for. Politics. This is not an Arcady Martin thing I'm complaining about. This is just the relative palatability of this particular style to me, who is <laughs> Rob Santos. And there's been uh, so much politics from page one on this, you know, with the exception of the brief encounter of the aliens that, that killed those few pilots. That was... Wow. Yeah, I was going to say there, even though there is still, of course, a lot of political maneuvering and interpersonal conflict going on in the first half of this book, just as there was in A Memory Called Empire, there is for sure more action in A Desolation Called Peace than there was in A Memory Called Empire, at least through the first half. Uh, you know, figure. Hold on. Besides that one encounter with uh, the aliens that killed those few pilots, that's the only one I can think of immediately. I mean, just basically everything around the war. You know, we, we've had scenes, we've had descriptions of, you know, their, their week-long encounter with these constant ambushes and, and the flanking by the aliens. And then we have the scene of them going down and investigating the colony. You know, there's, there's much more to the war side of it. Like, you know, I a memory called Empire was thoroughly a political thriller. Hmm. A Desolation Called Peace still has, you know, that element, but it is more so a war story than A Memory Called Empire was. Yeah, I suppose I forgot to mention the the dissection of the alien and the and the, uh, the autopsy of the alien body, too. I, told, yeah. I, I count that myself as an action scene. because it's Yeah, no, I, I actually yeah. do, too. Uh, I forgot to think about that when I was saying just the one. Yeah, I'm just pointing that, yeah. There's the physical tension to it. I mean, I, I just think back to when... Nine Hibiscus first looks at the body and, and she's kind of describing it from the, the feet up. You know, she she talks about the limbs first and talks about oh, the stocky, up, short, stocky legs and then the torso yeah, yeah. and then gets the to neck. this <laughs> horrific elongated neck. And I was like, ooh, yeah, that's the good stuff. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I hated that. I, I hated and loved. I hated to love and I loved to hate that little detail we got about this being the neck of a scavenger. And that's like what what they would have evolved as, or at least their uh, pre-sentient ancestors would have, would have evolved as, as as scavengers. And I was like, oh no, it's just so creepy. Get it away. That's what I like. She's so good at this. She's so good at yeah. what I like that even everything that I don't like, I can still say, hey, there's <laughs> others that like that. What I like in here, she is still good at that as well. She's really knocking it out of the park so far with the first half. I'm not going to say the yeah, whole book is going to be fantastic. But we'll and my, so my last style point is kind of on the pacing aspect. And again, I'm going to compare back to the first book. Granted, I haven't, I, I didn't have time to reread A Memory Called Empire. Um, but my memory of it was that the first half I enjoyed, but it wasn't very quick. It wasn't fast paced at all. And here, I wouldn't say this is fast paced, 
but it does move at a pretty good clip. And I think a big part of that is because there's actual physical movement the way there wasn't in A Memory Called Empire, where the first half of that book was about Mahit putting down her roots in Six Kalan and learning how to live in this one place. And in this, the first half of this, we have Mahit moving from the station to the fleet. We have three seagrass moving from the city to the station to the fleet. We have nine hibiscus with the fleet moving throughout the sector. There's there's a lot more physical movement that helps uh, keep things, you know, keep the gears turning and driving the narrative forward. The it, it's it's not as dependent on like learning knowledge as a memory called empire was you know where where it was like this is a mystery here's this murder mystery we need to figure out who killed yaskander and we need to figure out what's going on with the amago it was it was just unabashedly a political thriller mystery this one there are mysteries in it but that's not the core driving force of the narrative hmm and so that helps the pace, I think, kind of pick up and move a lot. Yeah. Shall we jump into characters? Anything else about style? No, let's, uh, let's head into characters. Okay. Who are we starting with? Uh, let's start with Mahit. Yeah. Because uh, I've already touched on this a little bit with you know my quote about the, the graphic novel. Um, I still like Mahit. But I think her context is more interesting than she herself is if that makes any sense like i love i love this like internal struggle um culturally more than i like the internal struggle of her imago plotline you know it's yeah. like uh she's a great vehicle for the th- thematic stuff that uh that martine is going for but as a character i'm more invested in all the rest of our point of view characters (laughs) (laughs) um i don't think i can say the same thing i'm a little more invested in mahit at the moment than i am with for example with three seagrass who i'm enjoying a little less than i did in the last book but just going on strictly with mahit now Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I've just finished my little rants about how much I don't in particularly enjoy politics in the way that some other people do. Um, but there's a lot of clever writing on Martine's part with Mahit scenes that I noticed even in her internal dialogue. The exchanges with Yaskander for me are very entertaining. But yeah, what I find are. most intriguing about uh, Mahit's scenes here, or I, sh- I should say Martine's ability with writing these scenes, with handling them as a writer, is to bring up details that you wouldn't think to have noticed if you have someone else living in your head, unless they were pointed out to you. There's a great example I wrote down in chapter one, where Mahit is approaching a meeting with Omnardbat. I think she was, mm-hmm. it was Omnardbat she was, she was going to be meeting with. And, she, and uh, we get, and the quote is, she was hesitating, poised outside the middlemost door with its neatly signed in the new font. And when will I get to stop noticing the fucking new font, Yaskander? It actually isn't a new font. It's only new font to you. And then, you know, 
it goes on. There's all this phantom pain and the mystery of whatever she's leading, uh, or wherever that's leading, I should say. Her Mahit's ability to smile with Yaskander's smile and talk with his inflections and his mannerisms, like. Martine's diff she's definitely given those of us who don't like the politics side a lot more than just that one note to the scenes involving this character. Mahit still has more than that, more than just the politics going on around her. It's, I mean, this is all I really have to say about Mahit for now, but I'm sure I'll be given way more to talk about in part two. But yeah, that's, my, that's what I think about Mahit. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's fair. Uh, I I do like those details uh and and like you brought up the the banter with yasconder is fun you know the <laughs> yeah it is the the snide remarks and the the sarcasm that's enjoyable um, yeah i forgot to mention at the, at the top of this episode i'll have to include a a warning that we're not going to be censoring this episode because I had a I had an F bomb right there, <laughs> and I have one more F bomb about Mahita. Actually, I just want to say I love her filthy fucking mouth. This is, this goes into what I'm talking about right now. Is it just me, or is she cursing, or perhaps maybe Martine is cursing a lot more in this book than she did in the last book? Because it, it was a couple years ago. I could be misremembering. It could be even more prevalent in a memory called Empire, for all I know. Yeah, I I honestly don't remember. Uh... I'm gonna pull it up and I'm gonna search the word fuck in each book respectively right now. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy! Did I buy it on the No, no, it was an audiobook. Damn it! A memory called Empire was I was on an audiobook. Unfortunately, I have both for this one. I have audio and Desolation called Peace for for text as well. I've got uh -huh. both versions for this one, but damn, I can't do that. Oh. Uh, yeah. Well, shall we move on to uh, three seagrass? Yes, let's move on to seagrass. Okay. So, I think I agree with you in the sense that. She's not as like charming? adorable as yeah, yeah, see, charming. The, the, first, the first sentence I have is word adorable in it when I was waiting for you to yeah. finish your point. Thank you, Drew. Yes. She's not but as she's adorable. Still, she still has that kind of irrepressible nature. Like I had a big grin on my face with her first point of view where she like assigns herself. I was like, that's such a three seagrass thing to do, you know? Uh it, it is a little frustrating. Um, you know, with her her conflict with Mahit, but of yeah, I mean, that's good writing. It's supposed to be frustrating, you know. And I I think it's it's framed really well how that conflict is more central to Three Seagrass than it is to Mahit. Mahit has bigger things to worry about. And so the relationship conflict we see more from Three Seagrass's side than we do from Mahit's side. And I thought that was really smart on Martine's part. It gives Mahit's uh, conflicts more room to breathe. And it gives Three Seagrass something important to do other than just the external, you know, like, go be an envoy to the fleet. Uh, and... and because I did get invested in their relationship in the first book, I think that's part of why I, I don't know, I'm more invested in Three Seagrass through the first half of this book than I am in Mahi, because I care more about her conflict, her main internal conflict, than I do the Yiskander integration conflict with Mahi. Yeah, you know, you, you just very briefly talked about that uh, conflict, that, that 
that she and Mahit had in a, nearing the end of this week's uh, subject reading. And at first, I it, to me, it felt forced, the entire conflict. I was like, does this have to happen here where they're in the middle of doing this? This doesn't really feel like the right place to put it. But then I considered what would have happened, like where would have happened otherwise, this conflict that was obviously going to need to happen. I mean, it was in the wrong place here when they were dissecting and... Uh, and, and that, sorry, I should say de deciphering the alien language and whatnot. But this is kind of the only place that they could have had that argument. The first place they could have had that argument yet. And yeah. so it kind of reminded me of how the relationship started. You know, it was, it was a heat of the moment. It was an inappropriate kind of thing when so much was happening around them. But it was genuine for it. And so even mm -hmm. though it was, at first to me, it felt forced, this conflict... I did have to take that step back as a reader and consider and consider context and like, okay, it was I'm I'm kind of right in that it was the wrong place, but that makes it more right in this way because for their relationship, this is how they've been going. And it does feel more true to both of those characters with one in regards to one another. Yeah, definitely. Um, but definitely. with C with three seagrass by herself on her own, she's still adorable, but oh my god, her viewpoints were hard for me to get through for this week like three seagrass is not a character whose head i enjoy being in i'm not a particularly widely traveled person myself nor do i have any intention to find myself in a lot of these situations that she finds herself in i'm just a very different person we spend so much of this first half of the book following three seagrass seemingly from like station to station observing new peoples new procedures jurisdictions more politics none of i mean none of her viewpoints were of any interest to me until she was finally reunited with mahit and then you know, I mean, I, I, I hesitate to say it because it sounds way more, in, you know, discriminatory, but I, I fell asleep no less than five or six times glazing down long paragraphs describing this society or that jump station or that delicate political situation. I'm like, I don't care. Let's get back to the alien threat. Hey, when's Nine Hibiscus coming back on the scene here? Um, but the most egregious scene for me, if, if, if the listener wants to see what it was I'm talking about, Chapter 6, there was a very long sequence, again, with three seagrass in public transport navigating LaSalle Station. It was the same scene where she was thinking about the four sunrises every day. Just so many uh -huh. peoples and behaviors and social situations. I was like, ugh, nine hibiscus, where are you? <laughs> I'm done with this. So, I, three seagrass, but like, again, she she reunited with Mahit. They're, they're working together on, on first contact scenario now. And so... For them, there's another external thing that they have to combat with one another. And I'm back in there. I'm back on board, if you'll forgive the expression, <laughs> with both of them. But separately, I don't think I like either of them. Does that make sense? Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Well, uh, you clearly like Nine Hibiscus. Oh, my goodness. So let's yes. talk about her. Okay. Obviously, where the majority of my interest comes from, if you've been listening to the, the episode for the past half hour, you know, uh, I admitted to being a simpler sort of reader. I like the horror. I like the mystery. I like the action. With the increasingly strange and horrifying encounters with the nebulous alien threat, like, ah, Nine Hibiscus's points of view, that was everything I wanted. Like, this is what I kept impatiently tapping my fingers to get back to, you know? Nine Hibiscus. And she's interesting in her own right. It's not just the the conflict that she has. It's not just what's around her. I mean, her character is really... In, in, in formula, nothing new, really. She's a, the concept of a leader who's 
has the loyalty of men and women to this degree. You know, I have a character very much like that myself in one of my own series. I already released entire chapters from that person's point of view, but there's a reason I wrote that character. I like it. I like Nine Hibiscus. It's one of those types of characters that unless the author really fucks it up and Martine definitely <laughs> did not, she nailed it. I'm immediately on board with like, like I want to see Nine Hibiscus in more battles now. I want to see her leading during a battle. I want to witness what it was that earned her that reputation. Just, I'm watching Nine Hibiscus the most at this point. Yeah, I... Uh, how do I put it? Like, So I, I'm obviously very invested in her storyline. I really want to see where it goes. But I did find myself wanting more from her. Uh, because, like you said, we were told a lot. Yes. Oh, yeah. like, you know, this this woman has this incredible, you know, loyalty from her troops and, and all that. I'm like, okay, you keep telling me this. I want to see it. I want to know why that is the case. And, and so much of her time has been spent either dealing with that giant bitch, 16 Moonrise, or... Uh, <laughs> that giant bitch, 16 Moonrise, yeah. Yeah, um, or, you know, the directly confronting the alien threat. And I enjoy both of those conflicts. They're fun. But I want a little more from inside uh, Nine Hibiscus. Context, maybe. Uh, and just as a, an aside, Swarm is awesome. <laughs> is he? Yeah, I, I, mean, I love I love that character. I love his name. That's really the only like that's the main thing, and it, I know it's a stupid surface level thing, but the name Swarm and how kind of off putting it is for a Tix Kalanli to be named after uh, a living thing in an like an animal, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Even Seagrass notices it. She's like, "Does an insect technically? It totally counts as an animal. It's a little inappropriate that name, isn't it? But I like it. I like that they're separately noticing these things. What I, mm-hmm. I, Swarm? You're right. Swarm is another character that. Deserves more context, I think. Oh, I... Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm I'm done with that for now. I'm I'm trying to restrain myself, because I have read this whole book before. Oh? Oh, that's right. What am I saying? Oh, that's right. You have. You were so adamant to get to it. Yeah, I I was lucky enough to receive an advanced review copy of it. Nice. And and so this is is my second time reading through the book, and... It's been it's been fun, you know, kind of reading through it a second time and getting, of course, additional context to things and seeing some of the subtle foreshadowing and and whatnot. But uh, but I'm obviously I'm trying very hard not to let that color. I'm trying to express my thoughts from just the first half from the first time I read it when I didn't know where it yeah was yeah you're trying to trying to rewind time a little bit and encapsulate yeah. what you thought coming out of that first half yeah exactly, yeah i can yeah. i can see that i've had to obviously do that a few times with books on this podcast too yeah um i'm done with nine hibiscus my only other character for it with eight. points on and it's very short is eight antidote anything yeah else we gotta we gotta talk eight antidote here yeah okay. um well so just pure like baseline do you like eight antidote as a person or as a character as a character Yes. Yeah. I, well, actually, I'm both is, both are a huge fan. Yeah. Um, I was super surprised, you know, when I started reading this book and I got a point of view and I was like, wait a second, are we going to, like, is he going to be a big character? Heck yeah. Because I remember being 
like creeped out by him almost in a memory called empire that he seemed more than just you know a a child that he was he was too in control of himself and his surroundings uh you know that scene in the gardens with mahid yeah i always figured he had like maybe like a social disorder of some sort uh and and the creep factor has has uh, fallen away now that I'm in his head. He's much more a how do you put it? Like uh, he's precocious um, and he's sympathetic. And I think it was a really clever thing for Martine in a book about war with all of these adults, right? You know, this is an adult science fiction story and then having a child be a main point of view character and be childlike i i found myself in a couple of scenes falling into a little bit of a trap with him trying to draw parallels to characters like ender and bean you know these child geniuses who really for the most part you know, if, if you read Ender's Game, if you read Ender's Shadow, they're children, but they act like adults. Eight Antidote is a child who acts and thinks like a child, but is a... is undoubtedly talented and is prepared to think, to try to become an adult from an earlier age. And so it's it's not quite the same as, like, Oh, he's an uber genius, and he's the smartest person in the world. He, you know, like he's not Bean, uh, but there's just enough of that talent. There's just enough of that intelligence there with him to make him really compelling to me. Oh yeah, yeah. Hey, antidote is uh, as much as I hate politics, and I've been talking about how much I hate politics, and I won't shut up about how much I hate politics. I'm really liking eight antidote scenes and. I think it's about the character himself. You know, too often we're reading in fantasy or sci-fi from the point of view of a young inheritor or a future inheritor of an empire. But the, the, the narrative then seems to be about them struggling to gain respect, coming to age to, and wanting to be taken seriously, trying to find secrets that are being hidden from them by all the adults, you know, the last smidges of secrets there that are left to be uncovered. And there's a bit of that to Eight Antidote. There has to be. But I love that he's testing boundaries. He's embracing his obvious likeness to Six Direction. He's using that. He's walking into tactical or strategical planning with Three Azimuth and Central Strategy 2. The entire scene in Central Strategy 2 when he's meeting there for, like, that that's so painted brilliantly. I love the futuristic aesthetic. I love the interpretation of War and Space. You were just talking about Ender's Game. This is some Ender's Game level stuff. It was really cool. And this is all with Eight Antidote. But it still doesn't take away how much I like that character on his own. It struck that chord with the geeky teenage boy that still lives inside of me there. And mm-hmm. there's a few of Martine's particular similes that I really liked with Eight Antidote's point of view. There's one that I wrote down. Eight Antidote looks at the world through the eyes of a child poet. There's no denying that. Like, like, here the tunnel narrowed, dipped left. It smelled of petrichor, rain in the underneath parts of flowers. The underneath parts of flowers. Aesthetically, it sounds so awkward, but it's gorgeous. Why is it gorgeous? And, like, it's... 
it's it's I do like seeing eight antidotes name precede a chapter. I do like yeah. it. Uh so I'm I'm done with my character notes and Same. I hope you are too because yep. you said something there that ties directly into like my main miscellaneous thought. Okay, hit me. And you said that eight antidote is testing boundaries. Yes. Boundaries. Borders. That is what this book is about. On every level. It's about the boundaries of human knowledge. It's about the... That, like, cultural event horizon between stationer culture and Texcalanli culture for Mahit. It's about the literal borders of the Texcalanli empire and the conflicts on the borders. It's about the boundary, the interpersonal boundaries, the, you know, the main, main conflict between three seagrass and Mahit is how three seagrass oversteps this boundary and is making assumptions about Mahit as a barbarian. Uh, like you said, Eight Antidote is is testing his limits. He's testing his his limits in terms of his personal skill, and he's testing the limits set uh, around his life by the culture, by the political structure of the empire. Everything in this book is about is it's liminal. It's it's all about that that defining borderline. I'll drink to that. <laughs> Um, yeah, my, my only miscellaneous point is uh, about this interlude with Anchu, you know, and I wrote down the quote here. The message comes in bright and hot, a desperate, breathless cry over long-range broadcast. They hide in the jump gate. They look like the jump gate. Mm. They're after me. I'm not fast enough. And Anchu, sitting in the nexus of pilot's command for her, the true heart of LaSalle, no matter what heritage believed about their room repository of Imago machines, Anchu, sitting there, has to ask her pilot to not come home. To not lead that hungry thing that Turats thinks could devour an entire empire back to the fragile shell of LaSalle Station. It is the worst thing she's ever done. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow, chill. That that is some Kristoff and Kaufman level situational heartbreak. Moments mm. like these are what makes me really excited to see a series ending out of Arcady Martin. Like she has talent in this regard, amongst other regards. Well, you don't you don't have much to wait. <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, yeah. So the this is a duology in oh. terms of these characters. Oh. But she does want to write more stories about the Texcalanli Empire, you know, down the road. Uh, I'm just talking about, like, the alien threat. <laughs> I want to, like... No, don't tell me, don't tell me. I'm just... Yeah, yeah. okay. Okay, all right. Uh, that's honestly it for my miscellaneous <laughs> as well. I think it's going to be a rather short episode today. Anything else miscellaneous you want to dive into? No, um... Oh, actually, yes. Throw it at me. Dude. Uh, just, just want to point out, um... Again, the names, so much fun. Oh, yeah. Uh, We've got a couple of on the names for ourselves. For I, I was about to say that. I have spent, like, since we first read A Memory Called Empire, I've spent that entire time trying to think of what my name would be. And I, I haven't to. quite settled on something. I know my number would be nine. Mm, ooh. 
I wanted to go something like a little inappropriate, something like twenty seven. Ooh, ooh. Yeah. Getting spicy there, Rob. I am getting a little spicy <laughs> on the Aching Out Loud podcast. Uh yeah, maybe we'll have to maybe we should agree for next week's episode we we come to it with uh you know with names for ourselves cool i don't know maybe maybe i'll try and find something we can do a giveaway like have have our our listeners give us their names as well and and we pick our favorite or something like that <laughs> to to give something away i want to know about name herself i'll have to think about that uh for next week but Cool. Uh, but yeah, and then my last kind of miscellaneous point is just I think the surrounding, the supporting cast in this book is much, much stronger than it was in A Memory Called Empire. Twelve Azalea was a good character, but he was the only one who really stood out to me. Uh, it, other than, you know, like the principal characters. Yeah. Mahi, three seagrass, nineteen ads. And I wish I could say one lightning, <laughs> but we got almost nothing out of one lightning. No, and he's he's old news yeah, now. Yeah, exactly. Um, but here, like I said, you know, swarm twenty cicada, awesome. Yeah. Uh, three azimuth, big fan. Really? I, yeah, I she she's really entertaining. Um, even just from the first, the first Is three azimuth, scene. the one that ruffled his hair. Yes. Okay, yeah, I'm totally on board. All right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's, and, and honestly, like, 16 Moonrise. I, I called her a bitch, because she's... You called her a gigantic a whole, bitch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but she's a good character, you know? Like, yeah, sure, it's yeah. It's a I good character to elicit that kind of feeling, you know? Uh, yeah, out, out of a reader. And so... Good. I'm really impressed with the supporting cast in this book. Same. I can agree with that. Yeah. All right, dude. Are we ready for the final draft already? You know, I I think I am. Sweet. And hey, I mean, I'm as ready as I've ever been because once again, I'm just drinking water. Hey, what's up, everybody? Like seven days without drinking any alcohol. I'm still going. I'm going to hit that three months at least. Hell yeah. Just water. Just some good old dihydrogen monoxide, as I can tell you now that I'm in chemistry class. <laughs> A polar molecule. Mm. <laughs> well, well, once again, I've I've stepped up my game to, you know, to drink for you. Thank you. Uh, drink and I am, I am drinking a beer from Weldworks Brewing Company in collaboration with Moxa Brewing Company. Moxa? I haven't heard of that yeah. one yet. Um, I don't think. Yeah, they're they're another well-regarded craft brewery known for their barrel-aged, you know, barrel-aging program. And this is a bourbon barrel-aged imperial stout, uh, aged for 21 months in a uh, and blended from a variety of five to ten year old bourbon barrels. It's it's darn good. Um, I was really excited when they announced this beer. I was. I was like, you know, uh, I think they could do something really good here. There are no adjuncts. It's just beer and barrel. And uh, and despite that, you know, I mean, obviously tons of bourbon, tons of, of that wood coming through. But there's like a... Like an almost s'mores quality, like, like milk chocolate marshmallow kind of. Like, it doesn't taste... L- like milk chocolate marshmallows, but there's that 
it approaches that, if that makes sense. Like when I smell it, when I when I take a sip and, and kind of let it sit in my mouth. There's the suggestion that's what of. It, yeah, it's that's what it makes me think of. And I really, really enjoy it. And uh, and as as is appropriate, not only for uh, this beer being a collaboration between two breweries, but appropriate for some of the themes in the first half of this book. This beer is called Symphonize. Symphonize? Symphonize. Ooh. Ooh. Now, I'm not going to lie. After you went on your, your, your rant about boundaries about 10 minutes ago, oh, I actually trust me. specifically said, if you'll, anyone goes back and listen, they hear me say, I'll drink to that. That's because <sighs> in that moment, I was going, this is going to be Drew's final draft, isn't it? <laughs> I, I looked. Unfortunately, I didn't. I didn't have anything that that was really good for that, uh, but I did think of it, and I I you did some poking around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard uh, boundaries I, come out of your mouth like twelve times, and I was like, "This is it. I'm gonna nail it this yeah. time." I wish. Uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll see if I can swing a trade for something uh, oh, in the next week. Don't tell me. Surprise me. Yeah, um, but I what? I don't know what the beer would be. I have to do are more. More entertaining than my action. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I think then that brings us to the end of this episode. It's like 47 minutes this episode is going to be, I think. That's insane. Yeah, not, this might be the shortest not, regularly timed weekly episode we've done. It's going to be close. Oh, yeah, wait, Rune of Kings might have been shorter. No, Rune of Kings was over an hour, I believe. But we've had a few, we've had a few come in under an hour. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think like our previous record would have been like 47 or 49. We're like right there. Yeah, yeah. Um... But anyway, this has been, oh my gosh, what episode is this? 116? Yep. According to the spreadsheet, yeah. which is... Yeah, I, I actually, for once, I do not have the spreadsheet open. Um, for once, <laughs> I do. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so this has been episode 116 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Next up, we will be continuing right on through to the end of A Desolation Called Peace. So chapter 10 through the end of the book. As always, if you want to support the show, check us out on Patreon. That's at patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. Uh, right now, you know, we're, we're really trying to uh, ramp up the show a little bit for, for some things we have planned in the later half of the year. And we're hoping that, you know, we can afford to, to do that. Um, get some, some pretty cool guest appearances on and, and uh, improve the quality of our of our episodes with some new software so consider supporting the show there if you want to help us out as always i have been your host drew mccaffrey and with me is my co-host rob santos right here thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time bye everyone <laughs>